Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger. I'm your co-host, Jason. In this episode, we chat with Ross Nickel, founder of Off-Season Creative, a boutique Brooklyn-based creative direction agency with a focus in music. Ross has worked with the likes of Teddy Geiger, Lucius, Mom and Pop Music, Real Estate, Whitney, the list goes on. So our conversation touches on everything he's learned in the music industry. From the importance of landscape and location to understanding the artist's mindset to the indie major divide, or lack thereof, and how data is more useful on the strategic managerial end than on the discovery and conceptual end. Of course, one of the really important byproducts of the digitization of the music industry is just how much data can actually help empower artists to take control of their own careers. And Ross has been helping artists do just that, drawing on his extensive knowledge and experience with management, marketing, creative direction, and design. Originally from San Diego, Ross went to school in Nashville and eventually migrated even further east to New York City. After a long bout at a major NYC artist management firm, Ross decided to go indie himself, launching Off-Season Creative, a company that takes, quote, a holistic and strategic approach in defining and developing an artist's creative direction through design, photography, and typography. Without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Ross Nickel. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? We're doing well. How are you doing, Ross? Great. Thanks, guys. So how long have you been in New York City, and when did you move into this beautiful work studio where we're recording from in Greenpoint? I moved to New York from Nashville in August of 2016, so I've been here now three and a half years. And... Um, I was in New York for my first year, and then I moved over to the Brooklyn side after uh, year one. I've been here ever since. And what is uh, where did the name Off Season Creative come from? That's a good question. I, aside from working in music, I love to surf and hike and travel, and I found the best times to go to my favorite spots were in the off season. Um, it started with a trip I took to Moab Desert um, in December, and I was the only one at Arches National Park. And that has nothing to do with music at all, but that, that sentiment of being somewhere that is otherwise way too populated during other months um, kind of struck a chord with me. And then I, I kind of took that concept and um, applied it to, to my own style of work. And I'm still kind of putting together the meaning of it and how it relates to music. <laughs> but I generally just gravitate towards places that feel a little less traveled or at times of the year or times of the day that um, might be a better experience with fewer people. So like natural landscape inspires your work a lot, right? It does. It does. And that is a, the most obvious way I can think of the name fitting with my work. I... I do a lot of underwater photography and a lot of landscape photography just for fun on the side. Um, and lately that work has found its way into my design and creative direction a lot more. So um, I primarily shoot film when I'm outside and in the ocean. And I really love the textures that you can get from underwater shots and landscape shots. Um, and what I'll end up doing is taking an underwater texture um, sometimes it's just this grainy, beautiful blue gradient from underwater or looking out at the ocean. And I'll take that and I'll somehow weave it into all of my designs. And sometimes it's not obvious at all. 
and it's kind of like a little secret stamp that I use on my work. Um, so I do carry that sort of off-season travel bug of a style with me into the work. It's just sometimes less obvious. So uh, it's kind of ironic, right? Because we're in New York City, which is not necessarily known for its uh, natural beauty. So what went into the decision to go from San Diego to Nashville to New York instead of maybe the two-hour drive north to Los Angeles? Right. I knew I wanted to get out of California um, after graduating from high school. I love California and may end up there someday again. But um, I wanted to see another part of the country. And Nashville is where I ended up for school and spent four years there. And then my first job out of, out of college brought me to New York. And I had spent summers interning here and loved New York. I think I was really drawn to and am still drawn to the novelty of it. And New England is still really novel to me. And I think in a way I can see it uh, retaining its novelty for many years to come. There's so much to see in Maine and Vermont and all these coastal towns that feel just so original and beautifully, beautifully natural landscapes. So yeah, that's what brought me here. And I'm really glad I made the move because I do feel like when I go back to LA or San Diego, there's a familiarity with the region. I can, I can get around places without using a map mm. and that feels, that feels good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to have that, that's still a part of me. Have you, have you noticed like a, a huge differentiation between all three of those cities, like industry wise? Yes. I don't, there's not a lot of, not between LA, Nashville and New York. Yes. Um, there's only a few music companies in San Diego, sadly, but, um, <laughs> there's been a big exodus from New York to LA. Yeah. A lot of, I've noticed that too. Yeah. yeah. Producers, musicians, uh, managers. I've seen it. People move to LA, but someone reminded me that this happens all the time and it's just a wave. And mm-hmm. in the next 10 years, you'll be hearing about everyone moving back to New York. So right. I'm not too concerned, but there does seem to be a migration in certain parts of music. If you're a writer, if you're in, interested in publishing and writing for other artists, LA is definitely the place to be. Or, or Nashville, if you're much more in the country, Nashville is the place to be for that. But New York still has the big, the big companies. There's still a lot of business here. It's just... Um, it's changing its profile sure, slowly. Yeah. yeah. Are you, do you approach things with an international mindset at all, or is it mostly like American or Western based? Um, it's Western for now. I, some of the, the thinking and strategy that I've started putting towards touring and, um, you know, one of the bands I manage, Plastic Picnic, putting them on the road in the UK. Mm. That's been a big consideration. Largely looking at their their listeners and knowing that London is the top five market. Totally. We've been able to use that to assume or, or bet that there are true fans in those foreign markets. So that's been a consideration. And then also on the, on the label side of things, um, when looking for label partners, there's North American label partners and then there are our European label partners, and that is certainly a consideration of finding the right, the right label that is based abroad who is the biggest fan of the music that could push it in territories that I am unfamiliar with, and most North American-based people don't 
try to learn themselves. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just uh, delegate to to those regions, people in those regions. So it's definitely something I see myself growing into over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, it's kind of at that that uh, peripheral point in my life where I'm I'm recognizing what I will do and what I will need to do in order to leverage those markets when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's still, we're flirting with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, so I remember you telling me one time that you, because you, you got into the music industry first as an artist, right? Um, I, I, I interned at a lot of labels and management companies and publishing companies throughout college. Mm-hmm. I kind of was touching on everything that I could. At the same time, writing my own music and Right. And performing. Um, there was a very, there's a, there was one point where I went on a tour. Oh, this is where you're going. Yeah, this is where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll say it. Uh, I went on a tour once with my friends Arlie, who are based in Nashville. And this is when I was working at the management company in New York. And I was still very much at that point where I was excited by a lot of things. I, I could have been, you know, I could have gone to a label, I could have gone to work in publishing. I was still figuring out you know, what I loved and what to pursue. And music, my own music was still a question mark. So I put this, this tour together with my, my friends, Arlie, and we just did the Northeast. We did New York, Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, I think, and, uh, and DC. And after that tour, I was so sure that I didn't want to do that again mm. um, for a few reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the show I booked in the show I booked in Boston was not what I was promised um, or what Google search brought up <laughs> when looking at the space, but it was basically a glorified goodwill. Um, nice. And there are people just walking around buying secondhand clothes. And I was on this like old gross carpet in the middle of this room. And there are these people looking, walking directly by me, giving me this look like, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew in that moment that this is a this is a really long road to be a musician and a performer, and that this yeah. and that this was not what I wanted to do because I got into music when I was nine or ten years old in the fourth grade because I wanted to learn Stacy's mom on the guitar. <laughs> and it's a good reason, though. I'm just saying it's a really good reason. <laughs> She's got it going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a simple time, and I. That's why I, I got into music, because I love to play guitar. And then I learned piano and drums and started singing. And I want to always keep that on the side as kind of something that's precious, that I don't, I don't want to risk ruining those, those, those things that I really love mm. and that hold a, um, a sentimental place for me. Uh, and I found that if I get so in my head on the business side of advancing shows and trying to find you know just the climb that goes with any artist trying to find a manager trying to find an agent growing the profile is such a um it's a very personal process and i think it can really ruin the love for the craft yeah in the process so that was the moment where i basically said to myself um not doing that anymore (laughs) i still write music and record but i'm not trying to I'm not trying to be an, a thing. Right, right. <laughs> so that was a nice, that was a nice uh, process in my personal um, crossing out of of pursuits to consider. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. But I assume it's it's giving you some insight into like artists' needs or how artists develop and it has, yeah. Um I recognize how hard it is to tour, but then also how important it is to tour. And I think what I've also picked up on and that this was a very early preliminary experience, that short tour, but I, I, I picked up on the highs and lows of being an artist because I've very much felt them myself um, as a musician, but also as a creative director and designer. And those highs and those lows are something I've become really in tune, mm-hmm. in tune with. And um, so with that, it's given me a, a very high level of empathy with right. the bands I get to work with. And I think being able to speak the language with the artists I, I do work with has been an advantage because I'm not a suit coming in, you know, trying to relate to something I don't understand. Sure. But I can, I can, I can speak the language better, and I think I can say things that are encouraging, or just be at the very least a support, an emotional support when things are difficult. Right. Yeah. So it 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 has taught me a lot, and I'm I'm really grateful for those not so glamorous experiences. <laughs> I mean, any artist, any artist that you'd ever talk to. Even superstars started somewhere and probably played that same Goodwill in oh, Boston. For sure. <laughs> I hope they didn't. <laughs> but but you know, everyone does start at some level, and I just decided that that wasn't mine. Yeah, my pursuit. Yeah, definitely. So many artists have those stories. Yeah, yeah, they do. Which sort of brings me to my next point, which is, what are some of, or do you see parallels between um, working like at a big management company and running your own business between like, you know, being an indie artist and a major label artist. Um, what are maybe some of the drawbacks and or benefits of both? The benefits of a larger management company is scale, basically. It's economies of scale, if you could apply that principle to relationships. And that is how so many larger management companies like the one I came from have succeeded is they have a such a large resource pool amongst themselves Mm -hmm. when they have 15 plus artists or in some cases some management companies are huge 50 plus 70 plus artists you have such a large infrastructure and you're one degree separated from anyone you need to email right when you're in that position of having so-and-so who's friends with the booker um saturday night live and then the next person who works at the company is best friends with the leading music photographer. Like you can get so much done more efficiently. And also when you pool together your resources and your reputations, hopefully positive ones, you can, you can leverage those together as a group to get business done faster. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is so much of the not so glamorous part of what working in the music industry entails. The main skill of being able to work in the music industry on the business side is just to be organized. Mm -hmm. Like to work in the industry is um, to have a good reputation, to to be dependable and to to be on top of it and to respond to emails on time. Yeah, yeah. Truly there is not a hard skill other than that. Some people would hate me for that, but it's really just re- on a right. higher level. On a higher level, you're just maintaining relationships. Yeah, it's human based. Yeah, it's hugely yeah. human based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what is your uh, 
A&R process as a creative director? Is it like you listen to a band you like and you like reach out and say, hey, I want to, you know, work with you? Or is it more organic or how does that work? It's happened pretty organically, thankfully, where people have made referrals or I've been sent music early on and had the chance to listen and see if it makes sense with with my style and if mm-hmm. it's something I could help build their vision. Um, but I've also done a lot of outreach too. When I, I've fallen in love with some artists. There's this, this artist from, from the UK named Malena Zavala and I heard her through a friend and have totally fallen in love with her music and she's never toured in the US and that's some that's an example of someone I've reached out to and have said like I really think I could help um, from a creative angle so it, it's pretty split but um, I I don't take on any kind of projects on the creative side unless there's um, something I can understand or relate to in the music be it the lyrics or the music or ideally both um, Sometimes there have been projects where I've, I've listened and I just can't wrap my head around it or I just personally can't enjoy it. <laughs> and that's when I'm, I'm not going to work on it. Right. Because I'm not going to do a good job. Sure. And um, I have learned that lesson the hard way. Uh-huh. I've taken on projects where I thought this is a good, this is a good, good project. Right. But I'm not listening to this music after I you know, clock out today. Sure. And that is never the attitude I want to have because yeah, I yeah. don't. And those projects ultimately didn't work in either side's best interest. So that's a new kind of rule. Note to self is I will only work on something if I'm excited to listen to it at 11 p.m. Yeah. Because yeah. then I know I'm, I'm working on something that is passion turned into work rather than, you know, just work. Totally. So would it be fair to say that your discovery process is more based in the world, like through your relationships with friends or other people in the industry? Or do you also at the same time navigate the deep waters of SoundCloud on like a 2 a.m. on a Tuesday night type of thing? No, I don't. I don't. I don't go on SoundCloud. Um, I only use SoundCloud for... I, I don't really use SoundCloud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm example. You know, maybe no, yeah, it's sure. another platform sure, sure. or whatever. But. Um, yeah, you know, I don't really have like a process. I'm never going through blogs. I'm rarely going through playlists like Spotify or Apple generated playlists to listen to mu- new music and discover. That would be a really cool thing though to be able to do. I don't quite have the bandwidth to be able to dedicate time to that discovery. So when it comes, when I hear new music, it's always by some level of um, chance or, or someone sent me something like, I think you'd like this a lot, which I love that way of receiving new music from right. trusted people. But, um, yeah, I mean, it would be really cool to be able to scan all of these different sources mm-hmm. and be able to, to measure them up against each other in a way to see, wow, this artist is like really doing well right now in some way. Um, but to be honest, I don't really use data when I'm falling in love with an artist. I don't really care too much. Like there are some artists that have like 50 monthly listeners that I'll love and I'll listen to a right. lot. So yeah, the, the NR process is a lot for me has been a lot less um, data driven on the front end, but it's been very much involved in the, okay, we're working together now. How can we use this data to our best? Sure. To best yeah, like yeah. push this project. So 
Yeah, it's more of a back-end thing and more of an intuition on the front-end. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that it's a conversation or like a thread that we constantly come across is, you know, so, you know, we work for this data analytics company in a creative space. Mm -hmm. So then the question then becomes, where does data belong Mm -hmm. in this entire cycle of, you know, a song being written Mm -hmm. all the way through to it, clips of it being on, you know, Instagram or whatever. And mm-hmm. how that cycles, and where does data belong, and where it doesn't. So for you, and it makes a lot of sense. It's really just like a a human. Do I vibe with it or not? Yeah. When it comes yeah. to the music discovery process, definitely. Yeah. Yep. And um, yeah, that that's also like a pretty precious moment when you hear an artist for the first time, or you hear a song that you fall in love with. It's always there's something a little bit magical about that first connection with a new song and then what I usually do is I beat that song to death for about seven days and then I hate it (laughs) but but that kind of like falling in love is is pretty special and it and I yeah kind of try to not question that process too much yeah yeah. like back to the data bit it's been really valuable when looking at an artist trajectory over once you've worked with someone for a few years to be able to look at okay, there was a certain amount of growth in May of 2017, and that growth isn't the same now. And being able to try and use some, I guess, deductive reasoning between all the different points and say, oh, well, you know, we were putting music out every month then. That probably makes sense why there was more interest or momentum. Mm. Haven't put out a song in six months. Like That might explain why <laughs> lis- listeners are falling off. Just, just maybe. It's just... <laughs> You know, that's an obvious example, but it's like there are little points that can nicely remind you or kind of keep you in check. Sure, yeah, yeah. So can you, can you think of a specific example where you've used social or streaming data to make a very strategic decision about an artist, be it creative or um, strictly managerial? So I haven't ever used data for my creative work with off season mm-hmm. for like the design for, for, yeah aspect, right mean, yeah. yeah with the design photography visual creative direction if there's an artist that's really trending with 14 to 18 year old males there are certain ways you could look at design that might better resonate with that sure. age group yeah so that is a that is a an approach that could be worth taking mm-hmm. but i think that can get a little too heady yeah yeah, yeah. a lot too heady um so when it comes to the design creative direction work, my, my instincts and in the, dir- the direction we choose with the artists and their teams is almost entirely based on the concept behind the songs. And then the visuals are built upon that vision. Um, so data isn't taken into consideration there for me personally, but on the management side of my work, it is, it's largely considered with touring, mm. looking at markets, that 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 a, s- a specific song sometimes right. and an artist as a whole can can really resonate like there have been some really random markets like singapore yeah. that have like really resonated with plastic picnic huh. and it's made me really curious to see what would happen if we ended up playing there yeah, yeah and that could be kind of a nice surprise but um in the states i've mostly used that data to to map out tours route tours to cities that seem to make the most sense right based on listeners 
Also with age groups, um, deciding whether or not to set your show as all ages, 18 up or Mm. 21 and up. Right. That affects the deals that you have to strike with the buyers in each market. Um, But sometimes it's really in your best interest to, to, to allow 18 year olds to come to your show. Right. If you have a predominantly younger fan base. So that, that's also a way you can use. I've used data. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's figuring out, you know, we might get a more favorable deal because it's 21 and up because all venues only want alcohol buyers in their room. They don't want kids with stamps for the alcohol sales reasons. Right. But, uh, you know, we're doing this for, for growing a fan base, not for, um, you know, walking away from the venue with the biggest check necessarily. So, so this actually is like a really interesting, like, so design plus data space is like what you've brought up with like, like this, this group in, well, this act that is resonating in Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. Does it affect like, let's say some kind of, um, all right, you're creative for that. You're creating for a campaign in Singapore, let's say on social media, will it, stay consistent with the acts vibe here in the states or for whatever cultural or aesthetic preferences that may be in Mm. singapore or maybe another market Mm. how does that change i mean maybe a parallel another parallel to compare it with is like movie trailer post or i'm sorry movie posters yeah i think we've all kind of like followed Mm. like now that kind of like you know movie blogs have been out for a while how you know a star wars poster will be different in china than it is in the states for a lot of various reasons um has that affected any of your work in the music industry at all for some of the album art or you know other that's a really cool question um i would say that every artist i work with or have spoken to is predominantly a North American artist. So they, they might have a great following abroad, but their, their audience is really based in North America. And I don't really have like a pulse on um, artists that are bigger in Japan than they may be in the States. I don't really know. And maybe that is a, I mean, that's a whole different world mm-hmm. worth tapping, totally worth tapping into. I mean, it would be a dream to work with a Japanese artist. Um, so that being said, it hasn't personally affected my design, but that did give me the idea. If you do have an artist who's, let's say, North American based, but you know there's a sizable audience in Singapore or Japan, to cater and, and create assets specific for when that artist is on the road mm. in those places, that could be a really clever use of shaping your design yeah, yeah. and your storefront, if you will, for the band. Um, and that could be as simple as understanding what visual artists are resonating in a, let's say a place like Japan and then taking that inspiration and building out, um, like the show poster for the venue they perform in Tokyo Mm -hmm. or working directly with the artist based there. And you here be just kind of the creative director overseeing that, the build of those assets. Right. But that could be a really cool thing to do. I did see, I was in Japan once and I came into this, um, this vinyl shop and I stumbled upon all these old, like they, they seemed rare. I haven't ever shown them to people really, but these old vinyls from the Beatles, there are tons of singles they, they released in the sixties and, and, um, 70, early seventies. Um, and they were f- covers I'd never seen in the States. Huh. Um, <laughs> photos of the band I'd never seen in the States and all the type 
on the covers and the back were all in Japanese. Right. Um, but that was very much a time where I was like, whoa, these are special and unique because no one has seen these in the States. Right. And those were definitely designed with Japanese audiences in mind. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if people are that thoughtful, though, anymore. Um, Yet. <laughs> yeah. And Maybe actually, more so. I don't know if I, you guys might know this better than I would. I don't know if, if Ariana Grande re- releases a song, I think the artwork is the same across the world. If it's on iTunes or, or Spotify, it's, I think it's going to look the same everywhere. Yeah, I'm not sure. But her posters for shows, of course, would be in Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think that's a really cool way to get more involved with your artists. But yeah. that being said, I do work primarily with, with developing an indie artist where the foreign markets are, are something to reach towards. Yeah. Where there isn't, you know, usually when you have an artist that's on such a high level, there are teams in places like France and Japan and the UK who are dedicated to your artist to grow them in those territories. I'm not really working with artists who are there. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's more like, how do we build this shape, this, this, this new band? Yeah. yeah. Jason has a really cool article about a concept called trigger cities. That's basically like certain markets. So like Singapore or Mexico city Mm -hmm. will trigger sort of, because everything is algorithmic based now will sort of trigger, um, placement on a playlist in another market or like a bigger playlist oh, you know so oh. it's sort of this like yeah doing very targeted um marketing mm-hmm. regionally mm-hmm. um to sort of springboard onto the next and then the next wow. until you're like you know that's huge pretty cool that's pretty cool yeah. just because like the i mean streaming has basically leapfrogged for these particular Markets, the whole like desktop computer era, like it went straight to cell phones. And now that people have access, their sheer quantity of streaming is a lot of times outpacing that of the normal kind of centers of gravity for mm-hmm. at least Western culture, you know, New York, LA, mm-hmm. London. Um, and instead of being replaced by Jakarta and mm-hmm. Hong Kong and, you know, Taipei sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and or I'm sorry, and Lima, mm-hmm. Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Latin America as well. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, that is. I do. I I have heard that Mexico City is a really big market for indie rock. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, it makes sense why that would be kind of a trigger city. Hmm. I've heard of artists going there and being surprised that wow, we're so well received here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's, I, yeah, that's that's interesting though. Spotify's blog uh, in 2018 called it uh, the world mecca for streaming. Their numbers, I think, were the highest in Mexico City. Wow. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah it's pretty huge. So <clears throat> what do you think is the hardest thing about being in the indie space? And do you think it's harder or easier now to make it as an indie artist? I think the opportunities to be heard are easier when it comes to these large playlists that are are curated with existing audiences that are significant at Spotify and Apple playlists, Amazon music playlists, you have a built in audience. And if you can be a lesser known band that ends up on one of those playlists, it's, it's, it's a great stage to be on. 
So in that respect, I do think it's easier. I don't think it's ever going to be easier on the side of cash flow for bands. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, that is the most important thing is the cash that a band has readily available or incoming through various channels. You just have to have enough right to make a project feasible to survive mm-hmm. and that is always going to be the challenge so i do think that there are easier opportunities to reach people at booking agencies to reach labels just email which is nothing new allows you access at least to these people who can at least you know put their eyes on your email right or, or acknowledge the band that you may have sent to them that is a unique opportunity but i think it still comes down to you may have access to new opportunities but to then capitalize on those opportunities and lead to true cash flow is the biggest challenge and the only way you can do that is if you have art that's reacting and an an audience that's growing so i think challenges for indie artists will always be the same but that's what that's what makes some of the best bands you know come through i believe that they um they're really good at their craft first Mm -hmm. and foremost but there has to be a kind of tireless energy that that motivates them at all costs they can't be giving up after their their one failed goodwill performance in boston (laughs) you know (laughs) like the like the, the real the real like independent bands and artists who who do break through have put in the time and will always keep putting in the time that's just a given that's um necessary for any level of success so i was stalking you on linkedin and um, (laughs) so you had some really interesting internship experiences yeah one at a major label working with a lot of anrs and another one um i forget what the title was it was like creative something with a large Publishing, publishing company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of curious how those experiences, because I know both of them are, have definitely have like one foot in data and making mm-hmm. a lot of decisions with it. So I'm just kind of curious in your day to day at those particular internships. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like any of those practices have stayed with you at all and how that affects what you do today at off season? Yes. Especially at the major label on the, at the publishing company, a little less so. Mm-hmm. with what I was doing specifically there. But um, I worked at Sony Music for a few years at the RCA's uh, A&R team. And then um, there's an A&R, Salam Remy, who worked for all of Sony's labels. And I was able to help them build out comprehensive reports of artists they were looking at potentially signing. And in putting together these reports, they were looking for past show history. They were looking for streaming numbers that I could pull. At the time, there weren't many tools to use to get streaming history in 2013. It did teach me to have to consider the full picture when it comes to to working with a band. Um, A label is only going to make a financial investment in an artist if they see promise across every single category they have to know that a band is going to tour and can tour well they have to know that a song can react at radio because labels make a lot of money at radio Hmm. Um, they have to know or hope that press outlets will be excited about a band and a band story there's so many factors 
that lead to a band having to, and I'm leaving out the most important thing. They have to be able to make incredible songs. <laughs> um, there's so many just tangent factors though, besides the making of music and the craft itself that contribute to an artist, excuse me, a label's decision to jump on board or not. So it did give me that sort of attitude of devils in the details. Like you have to dot your I's, cross your T's, and really basically project and calculate, like, is the investment of our time and our money um, going to pay off right. for these artists? Mm. And, but more importantly, more importantly, can we help these artists? Some artists just aren't meant for a label, a major label or an indie. It just doesn't make sense with their story and their goals. Um, so I do think that sort of comprehensive full picture look is, has been adopted in my practice now. And um, sort of what I was saying earlier, I do think very much about when it comes to creative direction, um, could I help these artists? Like, does my vision complement their existing brand um, and do I like the music enough to even dream up a, a vision for this artist mm -hmm. so my work is slightly less nuanced than labels because labels are doing uh, big radio promo tours and labels are very different breed than what I'm doing here now but the lesson of being careful and then being extra careful mm -hmm. again with every step you take is is a uh, is an important one too and also it's it's a little bit more precious than a, a more standard sort of sales job um with a product because you are working with the product is music but you're working ultimately with people and people's dreams mm -hmm. and you have to be considerate of of them and their their time and their and their craft i think that is where music is special we're pushing a product music that is so very intensely tied to other humans and their right. creations mm -hmm. and that gives people on the business side more reason to be be thoughtful professional and um, considerate of mm -hmm. of the investments they they decide to take on. right yeah yeah this is a big question but what do you think the future holds for indie music writ large and how might harnessing the power of data and data-driven decision-making help indie music professionals and or still maintain that, that element of humanity? Yeah, I think, I think data alone is not going to break an artist, mm -hmm. but it will just stoke the flames. Sure. So at the end of the day, there's something magical about what makes an artist uniquely interesting in the eyes of, of an audience um, and the craft and the songwriting is is something that I don't think can be chalked up to data but taking it from that step of an independent artist with momentum with with interest with talent taking that then to a larger stage and growing will fall entirely in the hands of how effectively is the data being employed mm -hmm. and I, I really do believe that strongly everything from everything from knowing that you can retarget 
online ads to everyone who's been to one of your shows in the last two years, you can very effectively use an online advertising strategy to retarget those fans so they know that you know, they should be coming to your next show. Right. You can grow your profile or yeah. placing a pixel on the back end of your website so you can also retarget people who have stumbled upon your website. That is like a small example in the world of advertising and reminding people that you exist as an artist. Um, but then I think touring is a really huge one and figuring out your, your markets where people are, are interested. And then you can, you can do a, set up a radio show in St. Louis if that happens to be your biggest market or try to get on the biggest summer festival um, in Atlanta because you know that that is a significant market for your fan base. That is all going to contribute to smarter smarter growth for bands. Um, without that data, bands could be making very poor decisions that are just not gonna get them to a place of potential success soon enough. So I think it's on artists and their teams to know how to effectively leverage the data, many, many pieces of data at their disposal to, to grow the profile of the band they work with. Can I ask a real quick, almost like lateral step about the analytics thing for designers themselves and art directors like yourselves. How much are analytics kind of important to that vertical? For example, like there's a lot of, I know, online spaces for art directors and designers to showcase their portfolios. Mm-hmm. Look at this cool stuff that he did. And then like, you can like follow that artist. You can like, mm-hmm. like, you know, the certain collection they did or whatever, you know, and then maybe that designer themselves will be like, oh, cool. Like she or he will be like, I'm gonna make more of that instead of this, you know, style or whatever, because it seems to be resonating with people. Um, does that, is that, is that more of a kind of not as relevant thing you feel like for that particular community as, yeah, as it is for music? I think you're right. Word of mouth, I think is really important for art directors um, and just portfolio. I mean, artists and their teams will make a decision whether or not to work with an art director based on what have you done in the past? And do we like this, stylistically speaking? It's much more of like a gut feeling and decision at that point than it is than it has, than it has to do with data. The data really is more valuable as a tool for artist growth beyond the artist brand. So as an art director, I don't consider data. As a manager, I do. Mm. Often. Mm. Cool. cool. About summed it up. Cool. So now we're just going to do like a, a speed round. So okay. we're just going to ask you, we're going to give you two options and just like pick the, the, the one you prefer as quickly as you can. Okay. Arena or dive bar? Dive bar. Followers or monthly listeners? Followers. Why? Monthly listeners are inflated, <laughs> and it, there, so many things can determine your monthly listeners. And then it turns to February first, and those monthly listeners drop in half. Yeah, followers are real fans. Gotcha. Film or digital? Film. <laughs> Solo artist or band? Band. <laughs> can I ask why? More, f- more fun to watch. Uh, Much more fun to watch. The interplay between the members. Yes, and more more exciting live and generally more exciting on record too yeah mm. 
That More being said, a great yeah. song is a great song, and if it's on a piano and a vocal, then more power to the artist. But if I'm going out for a show, I want to see a band. Yeah, yeah. Super cool. Viral hit or slow growth over time? Slow growth over time. Indie or major? Indie for the first four albums, and then <laughs> major because they need the larger team to build upon their existing fan base it's not a bad formula makes sense yeah the Adele, <laughs> the Adele route that's war on drugs too oh yeah so yeah. many cool bands have just followed that and that's that's like the perfect marriage of indie and major I think huh. yeah either or completely DIY either like major or indie label like basically signed oh, to a oh, label oh, oh. or DIY um label you're gonna have a much easier road um filters or natural lighting Natural. Streaming or vinyl? Both. By vinyl, but also stream. <laughs> <laughs> New York or LA? New York. <laughs> um, Instagram or TikTok? <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> Have you used TikTok? No. No. Do you feel like you are getting asked about it more? Like maybe creating assets for it? No. No? Fair. I haven't been. Um, be totally honest with you i have not even searched it on a browser i have no idea what it is i've seen people post it and instagram like repost it on their stories and stuff and yeah. it, it's kind of just like been enough i've i've gotten enough of what i've needed to see <laughs> yeah. yeah it seems like a lot of um self-important people from what i've seen that like to make videos of themselves doing that yeah right right Stupid right stuff fair Playlists or the search bar? Search bar. Yeah. Yeah. I think that falls in line with what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Um, absolute gains or percentage growth? It's getting a little nerdy. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a really good one. Okay. <laughs> uh, over time? Like over like yeah. three months or something? Yeah. Absolute. Really? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the other. Percentage change is an easier thing to share with people. Sure. So yeah. percentage change. Okay. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but, I mean, that doesn't mean much if you have two monthly listeners and then you have 20 yeah. monthly listeners. Right. right. That's a pretty big percentage yeah. change. Yeah. yeah. You kind of need both. You kind of need both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe over, after a certain threshold. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. There it is. Um, <laughs> Physical sketching or digital? Physical sketching. All right, last one. Tickets sold or streams listened to? Tickets sold. Fair enough. More hard. More yeah. hard numbers. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So that's it. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Ross. Uh, is there any way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Yes. You can find me at offseasoncreative.com. And my email is ross at offseasoncreative.com. Cool. Also on Instagram at rossnickel or offseasoncreative.com. <laughs> Actually, there's no .com in the Instagram handle. It's just offseasoncreative. <laughs> yeah, just type in. Yeah. Um, That's where you can find me. Or in Brooklyn, bopping around. Yeah. Yeah. Come through his studio in Greenpoint. It's yes. a really beautiful space. Ross. Thank you. It really is. <clears throat> yeah. So I guess there's one last thing. And we have a little studio space in Greenpoint on East River. 
and this is where we do a lot of our meetings and photo shoots and we design an album cover and discuss the vision of an, an artist brand together and this is the home of off season thanks so much Ross thank you guys thanks Ross bye